Well, good morning. If you have your Bible, please turn with me to Malachi uh, chapter 2. This morning's passage, is, it's, one of, it's, it's one of those hard passages for me to preach. It's, it's one that puts a spotlight upon me in, in my ministry, um, my family. Um, and as much as I don't enjoy preaching these types of passages, as I look at church in America just over the past two years, I'm reminded that these types of passages need preached. Um, over the past couple years, um, we have seen a number of well-known pastors, pastors who have best-selling books, who have led um, these huge conferences, they, they pastor mega churches, and uh, they, they have fallen to some type of moral failure. Um, it breaks my heart, it's, it scares me, um, thinking that these were, these were um, at some point they were good pastors, um, but they've lost their focus and um, a lot of the failures that we'll see in chapter 2 of Malachi are the same failures that we see in these fallen pastors. Um, and I think as we look at this, there's a general principle for all of us, not just for pastors, for leaders today, but there's a general principle for all of us that whether we're in leadership or not, um, immorality will always be exposed. Um, you, you will be caught either on this side of eternity or the next. All sin will be accounted for. Um, Sadly, pastors living immoral lives, um, it's nothing new. Over 2,500 years ago, Israel's priests were making a mockery of this high calling of the priesthood. In chapter 1, where we've been, you, you've seen the Lord confronting their behavior. Here in chapter 2, we see um, their punishment for how they've been treating this position. So let's, let's read chapter 2. We're going to read most of it um, this morning, and then we'll be looking at the high cost of a spiritual um, of spiritual leadership. Uh, so with that, let me um, start in verse one. And now, O priest, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I will give them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should, instruct, um, people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despise and abase before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and the abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has Married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of a man who does this, 
who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Let's pray. Uh, Father, as we um, just dive into your word, Lord, I pray that you would um, give us ears to hear. Lord, give us eyes to see um, the incredible truth found in this chapter. Lord, will you help us to seek after purity? Will you help us to be faithful to you? So, Lord, convict our hearts. Help us to repent of any sin that we're hiding. May we be reminded that it will be uncovered. And so, Lord, I um, thank you for your word this morning. May it build this church up to love and good deeds. And I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, so last week, we, we looked at how the Lord, he referred to himself over and over again as the Lord of hosts, uh, implying that if the angels bowed down and worshiped him, then so should we. Um, he is worthy of praise. He's worthy of honor. He is worthy of a reverent fear. He is this supreme being. He is literally the goat. Uh, a theologian named Jim once wrote, uh, you don't tug on Superman's cape, you don't spit into the wind, you don't pull the mask off that old lone ranger, and you don't mess around with Jim. The actions of the priests show us that they did not fear God. There's no reverence of him whatsoever. The priests didn't just tug on Yahweh's cape, but they smeared polluted offerings upon it. And Yahweh had enough. He was furious with the mockery that they had made of the priesthood. And here in chapter 2, God has had enough and places a curse upon them. This curse could be the end of the priesthood from God's perspective. God was closing the door on this season of Israel's history. They had made a mockery of this high call of the priesthood, and now God speaks a curse upon them. If you notice, this curse is not just to the priest, but also to their family. Look at verse 3. Verse 3 says, Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. The Lord says he's going to rebuke their offspring. This may seem harsh. This may seem unfair. But if you remember that the priests come from the tribe of Levi. All priests are Levites, but not all Levites are priests. And so God is essentially saying, I don't want your sons following in your footsteps you guys are finished no more mockery the next time um, that 
a priest shall speak. He will deliver the greatest message ever. Um, but until then, you are no longer going to be my messengers. And if that wasn't punishment enough, the Lord says, I'm going to spread dung on your faces. The dung of your offerings. And you shall be taken away with it. Uh, how many of you did not realize that's an Old Testament? That's actually read. I don't know if you think I just added that, but that's actually in your Bibles. That he's going to spread dung on their faces. It's like the Lord is treating the priests like somehow, like, like these some cruel pet owners treat their pets. Like is God rubbing their faces in dung to punish them? I think what Malachi is painting a picture of here is that the priests were pretending to be clean. They looked good on the outside. But the Lord was about to make it absolutely clear to everyone that the priests were far from clean. In order to, for the priests to um, make sacrifices, there was this cleansing process that the priests would have to go through. The cleansing process, it was to remind the priests of the sacredness, the weightiness of their position. And it was also to assure the people who came to offer a sacrifice, that the priest was in a right place with God, that he was able to make that sacrifice. So being clean was incredibly important for the priest. Now, there were a number of things that could make a priest unclean, like touching certain animals. Having an open wound would make them unclean. Um, having excrement of any type on your garments was definitely a no-brainer for them. They were unclean. If a priest had dung on their garments, they would have to change those garments and go through all the cleansing process all over again. So what was happening here was Israelites, they were coming to the priest to make sacrifices. The priests, they looked good on the outside. The people would bring their offerings and uh, this transaction was made and it all looked great. But deep inside, the priests, they were filthy. So here the picture is um, God is putting dung on a place, their face, in order to expose the wickedness of their hearts. So if you were going to bring your offering to the priest to sacrifice, and you saw dung on his face, you would clearly know that he was um, unclean. And you'd say, excuse me, sir, is there another priest around that I can see? Because you aren't able to make the sacrifice for me. Uh, God was externally exposing the uncleanness of their hearts. No more games. The time for games was over. If the priest thought it would be pleasing to offer up a diseased, polluted bull to the Lord, then the Lord is saying that you priests surely won't mind the dung of those diseased, polluted bull spread upon your face. God was finished. He was done. Leviticus 4 commanded that when you made a bull offering, the priests were to take the bull's skin, its flesh, and its dung and be burned outside the camp because it was unclean. The Lord is now saying the same thing about the priests. The priests were to be considered unclean in the same way the remains of the bull were considered unclean. As disgusting and as embarrassing it may be, having dung on your face is fairly a light sentence in comparison to the actual penalty found in Numbers 18. The penalty in Numbers 18 for profaning the altar was actually death. But God is a God of mercy. 
Rather than wiping out the entire clan of the Levites, God extends mercy upon them. He doesn't wipe them dead. Some of you, you may rather have death than have some dung on your face. Um, but even when you look at this, like what's maybe even perhaps a worse punishment is God's silence. When, when someone you care about is upset with you and there's a few hours of silence, it's horrific. Maybe you've experienced that. Maybe growing up uh, in a house, maybe your mom gave you the silent treatment or your dad, maybe it's... A, it's spouse, maybe it's a friend. It's horrific when someone that you care about just doesn't talk to you. Here's the beginning of 400 years of silence. Silence can be awkward, right? It can be horrific. And so there's no more prophets, no more words, no more truth, just silence. In verse 5, God now reflects on what a priest should be and how these priests have not come anywhere close to that standard. Look at verse 5. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction." Malachi lists several attributes here of a good priest. So let's quickly walk through these. First, a good priest is to fear God and be in awe of him. The language of fearing God is all throughout the Old Testament, especially in the book of Proverbs. Fearing God is a good thing for every believer. This might sound strange to some of you. You may be wondering, why should I have fear of God? Here's a great, a great quote from Oswald Chambers about fear. Chambers said this, the remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas in if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. A fear of God is simply an awareness of order. It's knowing your place, that he is the Lord of hosts. Knowing who God is and what he is capable of should lead you to have a reverent fear of him. If you don't have a fear of God, then you clearly do not have a biblical view of God. If the Bible says multiple times that you should fear God and you don't fear God, then you are not trusting the Bible's counsel. Next, we see that the priests were to hold to true doctrine. This is really important. In verse 6, um, we see that true instruction was in his mouth. And in verse 7, that the lips of the priest should guard knowledge. The priest was a messenger from God to his people. The priest should be able to know the law, be able to communicate that, instruct others to make sure that it was being enforced. Next, we see that the priest was, um, he was supposed to be honest. There were to be no wrong found on his lips. He was to be trustworthy. In addition to being a man of his word, he was also to be a man of repentance and integrity. 
that he would walk with me in peace and uprightness. The priest couldn't allow sin in the camp, and he needed to start with himself. He needed to hold the mirror up and make sure that nothing was slipping into his life. If so, he needed to repent of those sins. He must live a life of repentance. Um, he needed to be a man of integrity. He turns many from iniquity. Um, he should be someone who can shepherd the flock. He's, he's able to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. The lips of the priest should guard knowledge. He is not to have loose lips. Um, the Israelites were to be able to, to confide in him with their personal um, struggles and that they would know that it was going to stay with the priest, that he wasn't telling others um, their closest secrets. Uh, lastly, the, the people were to seek instruction from the priest. He had to be trustworthy, full of wisdom. People would bring conflicts to him. And so he's supposed to be able to settle those matters. Um, but these priests, they were showing partiality. They were supposed to decide cases based on integrity and truth, but they were ruling with bias. They were showing favoritism of some and injustice to others. So th these were some of the attributes of a Jewish priest. These attributes are also what this church should be looking for in their spiritual leaders, namely pastors. Um, but as you look at these characteristics, there's really there's no reason why all believers in Christ should not aspire for these attributes. Um, like 1 Timothy 3, uh, Titus chapter 1, both affirm these attributes for spiritual leaders like pastor, deacon. Uh, and this passage also shows us that what will happen to us as a church, if we're not careful, if we don't guard these positions, um, some of the same things can happen to us. And so... Here in chapter 2, there's a, there's a warning for us that we need to pay attention to. Because having unqualified leadership, like they had, will eventually cause others to stumble. We see that in verse 8. Verse 8, the Lord says to the priest that you have caused many to stumble. How terrible it is to think about that the priests themselves have caused many, of, uh, many people in Israel to stumble. Those entrusted to be ministers of the gospel are not only responsible for their own faithfulness and service to the Lord, but also how they lead others to do the same. This is why James 3, 1 scares me to death. James 3, 1 says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So I don't know how this plays out, but it seems like when it's all said and done, when I stand before the Lord, I will be judged in a different way than my wife will be. I will be judged as a teacher, as a pastor of this church. I will be held accountable in a way that others wouldn't be. And that frightens me to death. The Levites, they basically had two duties. Um, first, they settled disputes over the law. So when there were disagreements in the land, they acted as a judge. That was part of their role. Second, they um, protected an unholy people from a holy God. They were like these go-betweens um, on behalf of Israel and the Lord. Um, but as we see here, if the leadership doesn't follow the Lord, then how could you expect the congregation to do so? Israel was falling apart, and its fall started at the top. It started with leadership. Um, and that's often the case. 
In the church, you can, also, you can often look at um, an unhealthy church. You usually will have unhealthy leadership. In verses 10 through 16, we see the outcome of unhealthy, poor spiritual leadership. Now, I want you to notice how this nation falls apart. Verse 10, have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless. The abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Israel was falling apart. It wasn't because of bad policy. It wasn't because of the school system. It wasn't because the lack of funding for the Israeli military. But partly because the family was not a priority. Does this sound familiar? This should frighten you. Now, I'm in no way saying that America is a new Israel. But I think there's principles for every nation that can lead to a success and its failures. Whether you're lost or saved, if you're a sociologist, lost or saved, you, you would all, they, they all agree that in order for a culture to thrive, family is very key. There are two attacks on the family in this passage that Israel had committed. The first attack was one that they were really familiar with. This was something they had promised just decades ago when we were going through Nehemiah, not we were going through Nehemiah decades ago, but we were going through Nehemiah decades ago. Uh, they promised they would never do this again. Um, and here they are, they're doing it again. In this passage, God calls it an abomination. What was it? Intermarriage. I don't know if we've ever used that word for that, for intermarriage, would you call that an abomination? There were, they were marrying people who had different gods, and here the Lord of hosts calls it an abomination. Now, parents, how many of you would be fine if your son or daughter one day brings someone home who comes from a great family? And by great, what we really mean is wealthy. They're attractive. They make good grades and they're the captain of the varsity team, but does not have faith in Christ. Sadly, many parents would say, this is a wonderful thing. But God says, this is not wonderful. God says, this is an abomination. Israel began to marry people who had other gods. This is about sustaining faith. This is about leaving a legacy, generation after generation. If mom and dad have 
different gods, then who will the kids worship? Having a mom and dad who have two different gods, just, it just confuses the children. In our context today, having two different gods probably does not mean one of you believes in Jesus, one of you believes in Allah. In our context, more likely, one of you will worship Jesus, the other worships materials or money or themselves. The New Testament commands us to be equally yoked. Followers of Jesus should only marry followers of Jesus. The Bible does not encourage missionary dating. I know many of you think that's okay. Yes, I know that you have a friend that it worked out for, that they you know, dated somebody who wasn't a believer, and they prayed for them, and they became a believer, and yes, they're still married today, and that's great. I, too, have made many mistakes, and the Lord has redeemed them. Um, but we purposely don't disobey the Lord just so grace may abound. The second attack on the family in this passage is that they were divorcing the spouse of their youth in order to marry someone who worshipped a different God. The priest should have been guarding the family. They should have been protecting this covenant, but they didn't. Why didn't they care what others were doing? Because in this passage, we see that they were guilty of the same very things. So why wouldn't the pastor call you out on something? Because he's, he's living the same way. The marriage covenant is made between you and God. It's a covenant that illustrates how God responds to us. In the Bible, Jesus is referred to as the groom, and the church is referred to as the bride. Even though the bride, me and you, we often commit adultery, Jesus continues to take us back. Um, this is the picture that James 5 is painting for us. James 5 calls us, you adulterous people. God brings up marriage in this passage to show them how he has remained faithful even while they have committed not just physical adultery but spiritual adultery so how do we apply this passage to our lives we see that, that leaders are held to a higher standard than, than those that are being led all Christians in some way are leaders in some area of our lives, whether it's as a mom or dad, you're leading at home, whether you're a teacher in a school, a coach or a mentor, um, you know, being a kingdom of priests, we're all leading something at some point. Uh, so we're all under this, like, it, there's this danger that we could lead somebody astray. We could cause someone to stumble. And if we're honest this morning, I, I believe that, you know, that every one of us, we've repeatedly, um, we, we've committed adultery against the Lord. Look, we've all walked away. We've all had eyes for something else. The irony of this passage is that God appointed priests for the purpose of purifying the people and protecting the temple, but they were the source of the pollution rather than being the solution. The, the ones who were called to live a life of purity before the Lord were the ones who were actually destroying the nation. So church, please pray for the purity of of your pastors and deacons and deaconesses. Many of you ask just whether you're here on Sunday or just you'll send me a text and just say, hey, you're on my mind. How can I be praying for you? And usually my response is, is in some, some ways, like something about, would you please just pray for me that I would be disciplined? 
that I would walk with integrity, that I would have eyes for the Lord, that I would guard that personal time with Him. Um, the greatest gift that our elders can give to this congregation is not our preaching ability. You guys are saying, amen, I know that. Um, or our ability to visit the sick or comfort those who are hurting or to offer counsel to you. The greatest gift that our elders and spiritual leaders here can offer this church is our personal holiness to the Lord. So please pray for your elders, deacons, deaconess. Pray for our marriages. The enemy would love nothing more than to destroy those marriages. You know, what God has brought together, Satan would love to destroy. Pray for our protection. The enemy is uh, like a roaring lion seeking to destroy and devour leaders in the church. He would love to see our marriages fall apart. Um, some of the marriages I was talking about are some of the pastors who have fallen away, who have you know, committed immoral failures. Some of them have been affairs, and it's devastated the church that they pastor. Um, you know, imagine if I stand up one morning and, and talk how I committed an affair against Olivia, how that would hurt many of you. Um, and so please pray for our protection. Pray for our perseverance. Ask God to empower us to stand firm to the end, that we not quit the faith, that we finish the race. Some of those pastors over the last couple of years um, have just walked away. Not only have they, you know, some, some guys have um, committed failures, repented and you know trying to reconcile their life and still walking with the lord some of them have committed failures and just said i'm done i quit i don't even have faith anymore that that may blow some of your mind to think like put yourself in the shoes of that congregation for years they've heard these pastors they were celebrity pastors and people that you know they looked up to made much of and then now they're saying they don't even believe and so just think about that. Think 5, 10, 15 years from now if I would say that to you. That, that may shock you. That that might be a place I, I would get to. Pray for me. Pray for my perseverance. For Bruce, for Jay, for your deacons, deaconess. We need your prayers. It might seem unfathomable for some of you to think those things could happen to us. But I would imagine if you asked the congregation of those churches, those people would have said the same thing. So how do we um, see the gospel in this passage? Well, to, today, we don't need Levites. The Levites aren't necessary because we have a better intercessor and mediator who fulfills their functions that they failed to do. In 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, Paul says that Jesus is our representative. He is that go-between. The way an attorney is the representative of a defendant before a judge Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of the covenant God made with the tribe of Levi. And like Levi, Jesus was a man of godly commitment. And while Israel was seduced by other gods, Jesus Christ remained faithful to the God of the covenant. And he relentlessly pursued his bride while on earth as an example for us. Even while people were unfaithful to him, Christ remained faithful faithful all the way to the cross 
so that he might purchase the redemption of his people with his own blood. So this is the story of the gospel. It is the standard for faithfulness. It is the confidence of our salvation, and it is the only hope we have to mend all of our broken relationships. Namely, it is the hope where we find peace with our Heavenly Father. So I'm going to ask the band to come back up, and we're going to turn our attention to the last uh, of the smaller candles of Advent. Um, we remind you this Thursday, if you'll come back, we get to light the fifth candle, the Christ candle of purity. But this morning, we get to light peace. And so the idea is God's wrath is upon us. There's hostility between us and our Heavenly Father. And there had to be some kind of sacrifice. And the priests, they were offering polluted sacrifice. It needed to be a holy and unblemished sacrifice. And so Christ being this unblemished lamb of God died in our place so that we could have peace with him. So we light this candle this morning as a reminder that um, Christ brought peace, that there was hostility between us and God, and Christ reconciled that so that we can have peace with him. So this Christmas, uh, it can be a peaceful time. Um, it doesn't have to be a, a time of, of, of wrath and um, regret, but it can be a, a season of just reflection on what God has done for you, that he, is, that he has forgiven you of much, that there's peace. And so um, as we pray, I just want you to focus um, about what he's done for you, how he's given peace to you in spite of all of your sins. So let's, let's pray together. God, this morning we are so thankful uh, that Christ has made the ultimate sacrifice for us, that we can have peace with you, the, the holy, righteous God, that the unholy can have a relationship with the holy. It's because through this messenger, this mediator, Christ. So we thank you, Lord Jesus, for your sacrifice that brought us peace with God. So may we, as a, as a church, may we be thankful for that, um, for that gift. And may that gift lead us to sing with such great joy. So we thank you for what you've done for us, and we pray all of this in your name. Amen.